Danielle Sullivan. I am your host, a certified life coach, an autistic person, and parent of two neurodivergent kids. I'm so happy you're here with us today. Today, I'm so excited to be interviewing Catherine Lund, who's an English novelist. She uses writing to explore her neurodivergent life. Catherine has a non-discrete functional neurological disorder, which presents with aspects of non-epileptic seizures, chronic pain, and problems with OCD, anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues. She has previous diagnoses and presentations of epilepsy and nonverbal Tourette's. Catherine's great fascination is the way we construct our worlds, from our stories to our physical spaces. Her undergraduate degree in archaeology and her postgraduate qualifications in medieval archaeology, education, and creative writing are part of this passion. Catherine's novel, The Things We Left Sleeping, is out now. And I'm going to be talking with Catherine all about her neurodivergent experience, her experience writing her book, and it's just a really great conversation. I'm really glad you're tuning in for it. Before we speak with Catherine, I just want to thank my patrons for supporting this podcast. Thank you all so much. The podcast runs on patron donations. And if I didn't have y'all in my corner, we would not be able to produce these things. So thank you so much for being here with me. If you're interested, please check out patreon.com slash neurodiverging, where you can find out more about how to pledge to the neurodiverging podcast to keep us running, keep us going, get the transcriptions done, interview people and put all out all this good content for you. You'll also get some very excellent behind the scenes perks. The Patreon is patreon.com slash neurodiverging and pledges start at just a buck a month. And a quick plug for the website at neurodiverging.com where you can find articles about neurodivergent issues, full transcriptions of the podcast, a list of upcoming events I'm hosting, the vast majority of which are free or low cost. I do monthly webinars, I host support groups, I teach classes, so come join us. And now on to Catherine. Welcome, Catherine, to the Neurodiverging Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with us today. How are you? <laughs> I'm really excited. Thank you for having me and for inviting me into your podcast and by that into lots of people's homes, which is a very <laughs> exciting thought. I'm really excited to have you. We um, talk a lot because I'm an autistic person. We end up talking a lot about autism and ADHD on the podcast, but obviously neurodiverging is uh, meant to encompass many, many neurodivergent types and individuals. So I'm, I'm honestly really excited <laughs> to have somebody uh, who can kind of help us understand uh, different aspects of neurodivergent experience. So thanks so much for reaching out. No, that's so okay. And that's what's really exciting for me because it's something that I've had for like 14 years now and, and I'm still trying to understand it. So if I'm struggling to understand it, obviously it's difficult then for other people who haven't really heard of it before or don't really know anything about it to to understand it so that's part of what I want to do is you know tell people that this exists lots of people have it it's actually quite a common neurological condition it's just it's quite a complex one and it's a non-discrete one and there's lots of variation so just really giving people that idea that it, it's out there and this is what it looks like this is how it presents this is what someone who has it looks like and, and does Thank you. Yeah. And that's really part of my big goal too. I'm sure, you know, is just like giving us the opportunity to talk about ourselves and be better understood <laughs> in the world. So I'm just, I'm really excited. So I guess let's, let's like back up a little bit and could you, would you mind starting off just telling us a little bit about you and kind of what your, uh, how you would describe, I guess, your disabilities or neuro, neurodivergences. I can't English today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm Catherine Lund. I'm 37. As you can tell from my accent, I'm English. I'm from the north of England. And I've B 
been very lucky to do lots of really exciting things with my life. I've been to university, I've been to graduate school, I've worked in museums and heritage, I've done a little bit of teaching, I work in an arts and framing shop and this last year I have become on the back of um, an MA that I've got an author and also over about the last 14-15 years I've had problems with um, neurological difference, um, quite a strange and varied history of seizures, mental health problems and that's what FND is, it's not a discrete siege, it's not a discrete um, condition sorry it's not something like autism it's not something where there is even though there's a spectrum within those things they are a condition and you're going to present somewhere within that spectrum and you know you it's it's you you fall into almost categories of being with FND it's that you have lots of different presentations and they could come from lots of different conditions so you don't have enough of one thing to be put into a certain bracket so I should be able to tell from when I'm speaking I quite often say the wrong word and lose my train of thought so apologies for that it's a really inconvenient thing when you're trying to explain something it's but, very you know, common on this podcast of... so <laughs> you're not alone in that <laughs> um, so I've had epileptic seizures and non-epileptic seizures which are rather than having full convulsions you have mind absences you lose control of your limb if you drop things you throw things so I smash a lot of cups I drop a lot of phones my phone at the moment that I'm speaking into is in one of those army cases so I went to the phone shop and I was like I need the sturdiest phone case that you have so I've got a very attractive sort of army style phone case on my phone um, so memory problems OCD and associated with that as well just quite a lot of mental health programs so I've got a history of depression quite bad OCD um, high anxiety disassociation um, tiredness lack of I call it sort of temporal spatial awareness so someone can tell me that it's Wednesday and I know what Wednesday is but it doesn't really like make a connection in my brain so the best way I've had it described to me is that your computer's got all the tabs open and your your um, your computer tower your, your hard drive is all there but the connections in between the windows and in between the actual hardware of your computer it's just not always firing right mm. so I've got FND, you could have somebody else come on the program with FND and they could tell you, you know, a completely different range of symptoms and might only have a few which overlap and are the same as mine, which is one of the things that makes it sort of difficult to deal with and to get accommodations for because you could say I've got FND and they're like, great, what have you got? Um, and you, so if you end up giving a list. Yeah. So, um, and I, it's it's one of those things where it's been very bad in my life. It's been so bad in my life that I've had to live at home. I've had to rely on family. I've, you know, been signed off work sick for four years, you know, right through to I've been back to university. I have a job now. I work four days a week. I live independently. I've bought my own house. So it's one of those things that as well as having lots of different presentations and lots of different symptoms, how bad you are with it can really go up and down mm. through your life. And it can start at any time. So you can be born with it or like me, you can be sort of tootling away till you're 18, 19. And then suddenly, you know, it starts and presents Yeah. later on. So what was it like? Because you were, uh, if I remember correctly, you were, you've been dyslexic your whole life, right? I so, have been dyslexic my whole life, especially then, numerically dyslexic. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And then, so you had sort of one disability and then we're kind of hit with this whole host of additional ones later on in yeah. your teens is there what was like what was that like was the it was it was 
the thing is like when you're I think when you're a child and when you're a teenager you don't you don't realize you're different you don't know that your brain works differently from other people's you don't realize that other people don't go around like reciting little patterns in their heads and touching things over and over so I, I knew I was dyslexic my mum my mum who passed away about 14 15 years ago now but when I was little she was a special special educational needs coordinator at a primary school which I think is the equivalent of elementary schools and so I always I never had a statement she's like you're fine you don't need one yet you don't need one yet you'll get to a point where what you can do and what you can't do will tip and you'll you'll need your statement but and I had a lot of OCD um but I didn't realize that the OCD was a problem I just thought Mm. that was how my brain worked and it was only sort of when I got when in my third year at university I started having just really intense sudden onset um, head pains migraines which I put down to stress everyone's like oh you're very very stressed you've got you know you've got your um see the words those things that you're handing in your third year at university that take a lot of writing essays you know the thesis. yeah thesis you have your thesis <laughs> I get halfway through sentences and just start doing that just being like I yeah I can't get the word out I can't do the word but again (laughs) you sort of write it off and I could I could sort of cope with those things because they weren't overwhelming it's a bit annoying to lose your train of thought but it's not overwhelming it was only when um I was about 23 24 and I was having this really strange week where I was watching things on the television which I knew that I knew I'd watched them before like programs which I'd you know binge watched over and over again mm. I'm like I can't remember watching this program I can't remember it I don't know what these and then it would snap back in and it would feel like I'm at one time zone inside my head and another time zone on the on the outside and I'm like oh man I must be really really tired this week mm. and then I just had a week of having constant seizures and I was in hospital just constant seizures throughout the week mm. and then that was when it really I think that's when my life really really changed because from that time on I have never not had a day when I don't have something present. Mm-hmm. So that pain or disassociation or strange sensations in my head. And for the first four years, just really being quite incapable. So had to move back home with my dad, would spend mm-hmm. most of my time asleep, couldn't work, couldn't think, couldn't cook, couldn't hold things, just crying all the time, not being able to think, really, really bad nightmares. Mm-hmm. And that and it, it felt like an invasion. It felt like almost like a grief I'd lost yeah. this person that I was because the person before you know she'd just finished uni she was in her very early 20s and uni had been great I, had a, I did archaeology which was a great course <laughs> to do it's really good fun I picked it because I liked the university prospectus and archaeology was near the start of the prospectus and I'm like I'm going to do archaeology that sounds <laughs> really great that sounds really good fun I had done really well and I'd worked for my department and graduated near the top of my year and I was really ambitious and I was going to go and do all this stuff and then suddenly mm. I wasn't I couldn't even yeah. get up so it felt it felt very much like a death in a way it felt like I'd, I'd really lost the person that I was mm-hmm. and that really affected how I dealt with it I think for you know a good seven eight years because I was trying to fix myself I refused to believe that I wasn't going to get back yeah. to being what I saw was as, as myself. I was like, no, I was this person, this has happened and I'm going to get over this and I'm going to, I'm going to go back and I'm going to fix this and I'm going to be back to being that person. Mm. And that was a really, really difficult thing to, to stop thinking and to get my head around and to be like, no, this is actually, this is how it's going to be. And rather than trying to fix it, I've got to learn to accommodate it. I've got to learn to function with it. Mm-hmm. I've got to 
learn to stop berating myself for my boss and that person's gone so you can lose another 10 years or you can start dealing with the fact that this is what you've got and sort of move on from there but very much like a grief and very much like an invasion and very much like I've been knocked sideways from the life I absolutely was convinced I was going to have yeah onto one that I absolutely never thought that I would have and to be honest with you wouldn't choose I wouldn't choose to have Mm -hmm. this as a condition I know for lots of people it feels like a part of them but I think for me because it comes with a lot of pain and a lot of difficulties and a lot of restrictions I would you know absolutely get rid of it and that can be a difficult thing to reconcile with because it feels like you're saying I'm not happy with myself mm-hmm. you know I want to I want to get rid of a part of myself and I know I want to get rid of the discomfort that I've got with yeah. part of myself and it, it, it was very difficult just getting my head around that for the first seven or eight years or so so and part of that is the timing of it it was my early 20s and everyone else is getting married and buying houses and going on hen parties bachelor parties and I sort of like I turn up and go around I'm going to bed and it just felt all these things were happening and it was just slipping by in this timeless merge that Mm -hmm. I just had no connection to so I felt a little bit I felt quite a lot cheated actually quite a lot cheated at the timing of when this happened it just felt like a very unfair I would have mm-hmm. liked a few more years of being 20 I think but everybody yeah. does everyone wants a few more years of being 21 I think it's a it's yeah. a good age <laughs> it sounds like you were really lucky at university I um my early 20s were kind of a hot mess but there were definitely periods of my life where I would I would like them back very much so I think I can understand that uh, yeah. that feeling a lot how you said that um you know, there was this kind of huge period of grief and feeling like an alien has, has invaded and, and all this. And then that you sort of swung around to having or feeling like you had to integrate this part of this new part of your yeah. life um, into yourself to make it work so you could move forward. What was that integration like? Like, what were some of the things you did or, or thought through to try to move forward from that kind of huge knockdown in your yeah. early 20s? Part, part of it was... Part of it was just that that mental realisation. I was speaking to a counsellor, so I've seen lots of different people to help me with this. I've had counsellors and psychologists. And I've got a neuropsychologist at the moment. I've had neurologists. You know, I've had I've had the whole variety of people. But one of the most useful things that one of them said to me is, is why are you digging downwards? Um, I don't, that's what I was doing. I was digging downwards. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to slip backwards. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be this. And he's like, if you're not going anywhere you just mm-hmm. you are just putting yourself in a hole and I think I just needed somebody to to point that out to me so it was it was changing that way of thinking mm-hmm. it was also I've, I think because my condition is not discreet and because I have seen this whole range of people the sort of approach of sort of the medical professional side of it mm-hmm. has felt very alienated it's like I can see one person for this and one person for this and one person for this but none of it's coordinated and for a long time it felt like I was responsible for being ill because I wasn't seeing the right people and I wasn't seeing the right people because I wasn't asking for the right help and I wasn't Mm -hmm. asking for the right help because I don't know what I need and it was like this big circular almost think of self-blame and really struggling because you know my neurologist would say you need to see a sleep specialist but I can't refer you and my general practitioner would say well I can't say see a sleep specialist because you've got to have these leaflets first about not drinking caffeine and when you've done that I can give you some sleeping tablets and so it's not you know there there was times when I luckily my dad because my because my mum died of cancer my dad joined the local 
sort of hospital boards and was a patient liaison. So he's like, no, you absolutely can see a speech specialist. You just need to fill in this one and this one and this one. So I did. I got to see people, but only because I made a fuss about it. Mm -hmm. And part of, I think part of the reason that I was able to move forward a little bit was like, was by feeling that actually it's not my responsibility to make myself well. Mm -hmm. I have a perfect right to expect other people to shoulder a little bit of that for me. So if something's not working, it's not because I haven't done something, it's either because it's not working, it's not the right program for me, it's not the right medication for me, it's not the right medication combo for me. It, it, it's something that's not working, it's not something else that's not working because of me. Yeah. And that's a really easy thing to think sometimes because you're not, I'm not, I'm not working, my mm. meds aren't working, so that's my fault, I'm not having the right reaction to these meds, they told me they would work, they're not working, why aren't they working for me, and I think part of it is, is it's been getting out of that mindset, of, okay, this isn't working, fine, mm. I've tried it, I will try something else, and not be afraid to say, I want to try something else, I've had this, you know, seeing a counsellor has really helped at times, but I've got to the end of my 13 allotted weeks. Well, I want another 13 weeks, mm -hmm. actually. And it's been brave enough to say that I want that and I need that. And you're not being fussy and you're not being pushy. You're not take if your leg hadn't fixed, you'd say, put the cast back on. So yeah. why can't I say the equivalent? So, so part of it, I think, was, was that is that little change in, in attitude and, and change in mindset mm -hmm. that you're not you're not a problem. And that those people are actually, you know, someone goes, someone's a neurologist because they're interested in neurology. They actually want you to turn up and tell them what's wrong. They don't want you to think, I'm not going to do that because I've already seen four neurologists and they've not <laughs> helped. So, you know, just, just go and see another one mm -hmm. and, and get them to help you. Yeah. So, but I think sometimes you can't change the way that you think until you've sort of lived through it a bit because mm -hmm. you can't, you can't tell yourself to think differently. You've got to come to that realization of just, you no, know, this, this way of thinking is not working for me mm -hmm. but yeah let's let's just change it and let's you've kind of got to come to that yourself I think you can't be told and if someone told yeah. you you would find it really aggravating yes <laughs> you would find it really a very aggravating thing for them to say mm -hmm. yeah because it can feel reductionist I think sometimes for people to come in from outside and say you know, well, you're just not thinking about it the right way, you know, positive, yeah. positive thinking. And it's like, no, I can't positive think myself out of this. But to, no. to some degree, you're also completely right that if, if the if you're digging the hole straight down, you're never going to be able to dig it back yeah. up, right? Um, exactly. So, and yeah. like, it's not even a question of thinking positively, because at the same time, it's like, stop digging a hole downwards. It doesn't mean that you're, you're going to cure yourself. It means yeah. that you're accepting that you're not going to cure yourself, because all you're doing when you're digging down is going downwards yeah and even if you stop stay where you are and go forward you're not climbing back up well you, you've still changed direction you've yeah. still made that decision that you're going to try something different mm -hmm. yeah. so yeah yeah that's really interesting thank you for sharing all of that part of what you've had to learn to do then and especially since your condition kind of comprises so many different symptoms and is different from everybody else with your condition is you've had to learn how to ask for accommodations that yeah people can actually understand and hear and, and enable for you yeah. definitely because I mean I've tried going back to university twice to do a grad program and the first time which was probably about four or five years after I had those seizures it was absolutely disastrous it was mm -hmm. I think I lasted about eight months I just could not cope at all and part of that was because 
I was still trying to prove that I could turn up and do this. Mm -hmm. I don't need help. I can turn up and do this because I've done it before. I know that I'm, academic, I'm good at academia. I like academia. This is where I'm comfortable. So I returned to my undergraduate university because I felt very safe there, very mm -hmm. confident there. And I thought, I don't need to ask for anything. But actually, it was only when I got there that I realised I can't cope in seminar rooms because there's one spectrum of light in the bulb and there's another spectrum of light on the interactive white screen mm -hmm. and I can't control the temperature and I can't control the noise and uh, I can't control the commute so I'm really bad at getting on buses I'll be on them then I'll be thinking I don't recognize where I am I don't know where I'm meant to get off it's mm -hmm. a complete again dissociation and you know there, there was all these things that I discovered I couldn't do when I got there because I hadn't allowed myself to think what are the things that I might struggle with mm -hmm. and it got to the point where I just rang my dad at about midnight one night just an absolute flood of tears I'm like I can't do this come and get me come and get me right now mm -hmm. because I I've got to the point where I, I won't leave my flat I just cannot cope with the idea of opening the door and, and leaving my flat so it was actually quite detrimental it took me backwards mm -hmm. and then a few years ago I'm like no I'm going to do this again and I'm going to do something different I'm going to go to a completely different place I'm going to do a different course and I'm going to do it because I want to do the course and it, because it's interesting. But I'm also going to do it by yeah, not being afraid and also not really being embarrassed to say yeah. what I want. Because some of the things can seem quite strange. So I did, I did creative writing. I did creative writing at Oxford Brooks, which is a small sort of, yeah, very, very small campus university just on the outskirts of York. It does a lot of art and, and English and literature courses. So it was a really good choice. It was a small university. And we were in this you know, beautiful Victorian building that was just off campus and it had a veranda around it. So after some lectures, I would literally open the windows and I would sit on the veranda rather than sit in the lecture room. So I could yeah. still hear and I could mm -hmm. still interact. I just wasn't in that room that I couldn't do. And I don't think I would have had the confidence to do that the first time I tried. So it's about having that confidence to say, I don't care if you think this is really, really strange. I'm actually going to sit outside. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I have a lot of, um, on, on bad days, I can have you know, visual tics and um, spasms, and like I say, I throw things, and I'll just want to leave the room and go somewhere where I can control the environment and breathe and come back. And it's been brave enough and confident to say, if I'm doing that, don't ask me if I'm all right, because mm -hmm. people want to ask if you're okay and if they can mm -hmm. do something. And it's like, no, I'm not okay, but I'm managing how I'm not okay. And I just want to be able to exit the room and enter the room when I want to mm -hmm. and it's just about giving yourself I think those allowances that there's going to be things you can't cope with and that's okay so I gave myself two years because mm -hmm. I'm bad at timetable and scheduling and you know I can write off a week sometimes in the migraine so if you're giving yourself a time pressure that's not mm -hmm. going to help so all these things that I'd learned from just doing it so wrong the first time but my university was also really great as well so I went to Good. I went to their student services, to the disability services, and said, I've got, these are the problems. So I went to the tech day in Freshers' Week, and they got me a laptop, and they downloaded all this really super, stupid tech onto it that I just could never have afforded if I'd done it on my own. <laughs> and it was so good that I've, I've only just stopped using that laptop. It's had mm -hmm. no G key for about two years. So I've written a whole novel without a G key. Like, you really have to press it up and down. But like screen rulers, screen size, dictaphones, recording programs, mm -hmm. just anything that cuts down my screen time. Um, that helped me to help me read, helped me read online. And 
I've stopped being conscious about having to use it. I think that's an important thing. I've stopped being mm -hmm. conscious about having to use things like that. And sometimes you ask for things and it's not useful and that's all right as well. If you've asked for something and you've tried it and it's not useful, you haven't wasted people's time. No. You've, you've tried it and it's not useful. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. But yeah, so some of the stuff I've had to do is quite strange. Like I got, um, it's a city university, so there's very limited parking space, but I said, I need a parking space. So I got a disability park parking permit mm -hmm. I put um, a blanket and a pillow in my car and if I wasn't coping I would literally go and lock myself in the car where the windows mm -hmm. were tinted and I could control the temperature I could make it quiet I could make it dark yeah. and you know I'd lock myself in the car for four hours and then I go back to university mm -hmm. so yeah it's just about I think it's because I more knowledge of what it was that I needed mm -hmm. which is quite a lot of control actually I need quite a lot yeah. of control of where I am and natural lighting I, I can only cope with natural lighting so I'm like natural lighting only obviously so <laughs> yeah. big window <laughs> yeah. is what I need I'm sure a small university helped with that or I hope it did because I went to a large school for undergraduate and it was artificial lighting the whole way like because it were <laughs> you know 12 floor buildings and things and yeah in retrospect it was not good for me but at the at that time I didn't know I was autistic so I had no background to say this is why this is bothering me so it sounds yeah. like you've done not only uh that not only you figured out what accommodations to ask for and what to advocate for but also you've set boundaries around how people should interact with you when you're having when you need some breaks and you've also been able to sort of look at the expectations you had for like kind of what what normal people do and and just throw some of those out the window and say well these are not expectations for me these are for you know people without this condition yeah. yeah exactly and I think that's something that everyone should do for themselves anyway you know whether they've got a disability got something that affects them or not your boundaries are your boundaries and you should only be trying to do something for the right reasons so that first time I had completely the wrong reasons I was trying to prove something and mm -hmm. if you're trying to prove something like that you're going to fail anyway something's going to fail you because you're going to you're going to fall short, short of that standard of try, trying to live up to what you think you should be that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a really difficult thing to do um but just going a bit more with the floor and just going with a bit more of I'm doing this because it's something that I'm good at and doing this because I enjoy it mm -hmm. and yeah just setting better mental expectations because you don't want the fact that you've got out of bed to be an achievement but actually sometimes the fact that you've got out of bed yes, is an achievement is. and you should, let, you should let yourself have it yeah um so being a bit, a bit lots of people say it just being that little bit kinder to yourself that you know something that other people might find a really simple thing to do like get the bus to campus mm -hmm. for you isn't so you're going to you're going to walk for an hour and a half because you're not going to get that bus mm -hmm. so you're putting more into that commute before yeah. you've even got there and just but say more okay but I can actually walk and that is a you know people there's people that can't do that there's people that won't be able to have that option and I've got that option so turning it around a little bit and looking like well look at that I have got a way of doing that mm -hmm that's something that I can do yeah yeah that's really helpful thank you <laughs> <laughs> so I know you just published your first book is that right it just it came I out recently or it's coming out <laughs> it came out recently it came out in May and May. congratulations <laughs> thank you very much thank you and um yeah it's one of those things where and I'm sure other people experience this as well you you know you go to see a neurologist you go to see a specialist and they say describe describe what describe how you're feeling, describe what it feels like. 
and I'm like, I can't describe what it feels like because the thing that I've got to describe this with is my brain and my brain isn't working my brain is what's broken so how how can I describe to you what my brain is doing when my brain isn't working but you get asked it over and over again and it's so so frustrating and of course I was doing a creative writing course and I was looking at this piece of blank paper and I'm like that is just my mind my mind is this piece of blank paper so I drew um, a picture on it and it was a picture of a face made up of words and it, it was made up of the word face so it's a face drawn of the word face and I'm like, that is what it's like when I look in the mirror and I don't recognize that that's me mm -hmm. I know that that's a face I know that I have a face but I can't connect the two I have a lot of problems with facial recognition you know I remember one time walking into my sister's bar when she was running a bar and I'm like that's my sister I have a sister but no connection in between the two that the person I'm looking at that no that's Alison that's that's her mm -hmm. and I was looking at this face and I'm like well that that's what it's like it's like you're a blank page and you've got a picture made up of a word but you've not got the face so I started doing more of these and then from that really sort of the book came from those images so it's the story of a girl called Evie who has had a sequence of seizures. She's walking up in this strange landscape and she's trying to rebuild her consciousness in it. So she's starting off with these very simple word pictures and she's going all the way through. She's notebooking. She's being set tasks by this rather sinister sounding narrator to doing this notebook. And she's working all the way through and gradually she's taking back the narrative from the narrator until it's her book and until she's fully writing this narrative because what of course she's getting back is she's getting back her advocacy and her ability to use her language to describe what's going on in her head and describe her feelings around her but I think the most useful thing I found about it was that I was able to show in the book that my brain isn't a linear thing at the moment it doesn't have a narration that starts and finishes it's constantly interrupted and it's stopped because I've got limitations so um, the book actually has a second narrative in it which is the world outside of Evie's head and that's her friend Stevie and her family and they're sort of running side by side but they can't connect together yeah because that's what disassociation feels like it feels like you're you know you're here on the left hand page and everybody else is on the right hand page and it's a different tempo and it's a different almost a different feel to the language and you just can't come together so even when both sides of the book are both talking about the same thing they're not connecting yeah. and then it's interspersed with medical notes and it's a bit like a choose your own adventure for neurological illness really so you have to decide how you're going to read it and which bits you're going to read and you've got to backtrack on yourself so it sounds when I say that really really complicated but it's I didn't want to tell people that it's hard sometimes with the neurological illness I wanted to show people what it's like to experience mm -hmm. that neurological illness so sometimes you've got to turn the book around because you feel like you don't fit into the world right so your narration's going the opposite way to the world and you've got to backtrack and you get interrupted and you can't connect with people mm -hmm. but the whole point of the story is that you do move forward so even though she's struggling in this book she is moving forward she is trying to get to this place where she's going to wake up and she is going to end up back in the real world and she is going to end up more clicked in and more dialed in so it was I didn't know I was going to do that when I started writing the book but it was something that came about because of what I was experiencing and 
just this frustration of people asking me what is it what is it like what is it like mm. and I'm like well it's like this it's it's like it's constantly snowing in my head and I've got pins and needles and it's cold and I feel cold even when it's sunny so there's lots of snow in the book and it's it's yeah it's that it's that way of saying well it's like this and it's quite difficult mm. but it does also feel worthwhile to keep going yeah. and that's the other important bit of the book it's worthwhile to keep going and even though I've lost you know, Evie in the book she loses a lot of herself she's at this farm and she's got she's got nothing you know she's in a completely barren snow-filled landscape but what she finds as she goes forward is she has things that she's quite happy to let go because they're not mm. part of her person anymore but she has fundamental things about herself which she really isn't going to let go of she's got memories that she's she's going to try really hard to keep she's got her family out there in the real world that she she is going to want to get back to because they're important and that's what I found that there's things where I'm like I'm going to let those go because mm. they're gone and there's other things that I'm, I'm not going to let those go I'm not I'm going to absolutely refuse to let those go and I'm going to keep trying to have them because they're important yeah. so I think it's a book about what's important as you as you try and what's important as you as you journey forwards and sometimes sideways and sometimes the other way around <laughs> in the book. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how identity kind of forms and reforms throughout your life. And I, I love the idea of how, I mean, a lot of times the, the most basic way we describe neurodiversity, right, is that our brains go in different directions. We think in different ways. Yeah. And I love that that can be practically seen in a book where you're you're actually having to turn it or you're actually having to change the page yeah. and that you're almost making neurodivergent or your neurodivergent brain accessible to folks who don't have one. It's, it's like a nice little yeah. inverse. It's really interesting. Thanks for yeah, sharing that's, that. I think that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like, well, this is, this is what it's like. And, and here you go. And this is it on the page yeah. and, and take it and have it. And, you know, there's, there's no right or wrong way of, of interacting with it as a book. And you can take from it what you want. You can treat it like a love story. You can treat it like a healing story. You can treat it like a, like I said, like a choose your own adventure. You can you can take from it what you want. Yeah. But while you're doing that, you know, have that experience of this is this is what it's like. This is what it's like for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the process of writing the book actually like for you in terms of your own disabilities? <laughs> because were you like with the memory issues and stuff, like were you able to sort of do the traditional sit there and write a book kind of thing? No, that you... <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that um, like the one thing that I found that I was still okay with was that I've always loved writing. I've always loved reading. I've always loved writing. That's always been like, the thing that I really liked. I sort of dropped it in my late teens when I went to university because I wanted to do something really different mm -hmm. and never really came back to it I wasn't having any success with it I was finding it quite frustrating I'm like you know what it's just it's just a fun thing and I'm not really going to go near it but that night when I was really really ill and I phoned my dad and said come home I couldn't mm -hmm. sleep I had really bad insomnia and I just got my laptop out and I just I wrote something I wrote a short story and I sent it off and it won a competition. It won me £500, which was like the most money I'd had since I got ill. And I was like, Fantastic. this seems to be, this seems to be one of those things that is very, very deeply rooted in me. And that's what is strange about neurological disorders. So one of the things I couldn't do at university was that I couldn't structure an essay. Mm -hmm. I couldn't work out how to structure an essay. I couldn't start it. I couldn't do a cohesive argument. But I could, I could write a piece of creative writing. And quite what the distinction is in my brain with that, I don't know. 
yeah. and when and I wrote when I came to approach the book I actually wrote I wrote it in quite an odd way so I was doing these pictures I'd started mapping out the idea that you know there was these two girls and they were side by side and they were journeying towards each other and I actually wrote it as a fairy story so I wrote mm -hmm. a fairy story about uh, you know these two characters and one of them was cursed and the other one was trying to journey to undo the curse for her and she was meeting all the other characters that were actually in the book and then I sort of had that as a reference point so as I was writing I was looking at this strange fairy story which was full of things like labyrinth maps and and all sorts and I think that was my way of structuring the story so even though it wasn't really a story structure it was lots of strange pictures and little poems stuck together and you know, strange conversations between talking birds. That was enough for my mind to to hook onto, and sort of guide 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 me through. And then at the time, I had an agent for it, a very very good agent in London who was so helpful. And he's like, right, so now what you need to do is you need to get rid of all these fairy story references, mm. and sort of yeah, sort of divorce it from that because that is your that's your structure, but it's not something that the reader mm -hmm. needs to see. So that was sort of how I planned it out but the, the most difficult thing for me is that I will start writing and then you know suddenly it's it's 12 hours later and I spent all day looking at a screen and not really noticed it yeah and then that's me for the next three days mm -hmm. is you know I've got a migraine I don't feel very well um so it's it's a it's a long process when you struggle with the equipment but I can't handwrite it because I'm dyslexic and my handwriting's appalling so I can't mm -hmm. handwrite it screenwriting is difficult there's no way I'm speaking it out loud because I can't you know I it's almost like I need to be typing to process the thought yeah so the, the most difficult thing was actually looking at the screen mm -hmm. and having that screen time it's really really difficult and it's one of the other reasons why the book is a physical book mm -hmm. um which I know might sound strange when it's a book which is sort of trying to share the idea of accessibility with people and, and experience but I can't experience things on screen so mm. I've written a book where you have to experience it on paper yeah and if anyone has any ideas at all how to how to turn something with multiple directions and narratives and stuff into an audiobook or into something that makes it accessible for other people you know that that's great but you know t tell me how to do it because I don't <laughs> know but um for me it's a physical book because that's how I interact with words mm. and that is where I don't struggle. I I, I don't have a Kindle. I can't read online. And so yeah, so the the screen part was was the really difficult part for me. Yeah. So and you mentioned just a minute ago your your dyslexia, and I was wondering about since you've had some neurodivergences since your early youth, and then some came on later. Does does the sort of I guess the the difficulties of dyslexia did they sort of integrate with everything else or are they sort of stacked? Do you know what I mean? Like, do you have different concerns with those different sets of traits or are they all I think, together? <laughs> I, think, I think they're sort of all together. Yeah. I'm, I'm, at the point, I'm at the point with my dyslexia where I mainly find it amusing. So it's, it's something that like, I'll completely misread adverts and think they say exactly the opposite of what they're doing. I'm like, that's a really strange image to link with those words. I'm like, oh gosh, you've just completely mm -hmm. not read that that word right but I think it I mean I think it, it fits in quite well with what I have because quite mm -hmm. a lot of what I have is a sort of inability to interpret the world properly which is what a lot of you know well not properly but that you know on a par with everybody yeah, else same, yeah 
in, in, in the same way. So it, it sort of feels like it fits quite well, really. <laughs> it's just it's just another way that my my brain isn't quite seeing things the same as everybody else. And I mean, luckily for me, I mean, I'm really bad at maths and you know, I shouldn't say that because I work in a job which involves measuring things, but mm. practical math is all right. But any any yeah. sort of abstract maths, absolutely not. But that's where my dyslexia is worse. Whereas mm. with things like reading and writing, it, I've got appalling handwriting. I can't spell. So the grammar bit was also really, really difficult. And mm. thankfully, my lovely editors and the lovely proofreaders at my publishers, which is Atmosphere, you know, they, they took it away and they fixed it. Yeah. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I still don't, mm-hmm. I still can't do commas and apostrophes. I get, I get mixed up with that. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think everybody does, but. I think a lot of people do too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, yeah, it, it just sort of, it fits in because all, all it gives me, I can read very, very fast. I can skim read very, very fast. Mm-hmm. And I think actually dyslexia actually helps that because you're not as committed to reading the whole world, the yeah. whole word. Your brain is literally scanning and giving you suggestions Mm -hmm. and you know seven of those suggestions will be right and three will be absolutely ridiculous but on balance by the end of the page you've got the idea so I think it actually started to help me in a Mm -hmm. way because you know I can I can do a novel in a night and I think it's because quite a lot of my brain is just going yeah we get the general gist we get the general Mm -hmm. gist we get the general gist it sounds like you're not appreciating the actual language of the book but it it, and you know I'm very lucky because some people's dyslexia it makes it very difficult for them to read mm-hmm. so again, again it's that thing that everyone's everyone's slightly different with the condition that they have and the way that mine presents actually fits in quite well with what I with what I do when I write mm-hmm. it gives me that chance to you know proofread very quickly and look through changes very quickly mm-hmm. I just absolutely cannot proofread and edit my own work mm-hmm. for things like spellings yeah that's just that's never going to happen yeah that's, thank you. That's really interesting. I, I also, not being dyslexic myself, we've had a couple of other guests who are dyslexic and I'm always so interested to hear how it presents for different folks because it does seem like there's so many, so many differences and that's really cool. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Your book is? Um, it's called The Things We Left Sleeping and it's published by Atmosphere Press, who are um, an American publisher. So thank you very much, America, when the UK <laughs> had absolutely zero interest in publishing my book. America came through for me. So um, one good thing we've done in the past hundred years. <laughs> thank you very much for that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've got a website. It's katherinelundtheauthor.co.uk. Um, you can link to it through my Instagram, which is author. Same handle for Twitter. Um, or just put me into Barnes and Noble or Amazon or you know any big online retailer and I'll, I'll pop up when I'm there and you know it's it's not been out very long so if anyone's out there honest reviews always welcome give it a read give an honest review on something help spread the word it's always really appreciated wonderful thank you so um, if you check the show notes below listeners I will have all the links to all of Catherine's things so go follow on social media go read the book <laughs> support yeah Thank you so much. And if you follow me on social media, there's an occasional picture of my two house rabbits. So if that (gasps) isn't a bonus Bonus. for you, (laughs) bonus bunnies, if you follow me on any of my social media accounts. So there you are. I I don't know how else to bribe people into following me, but you'll get an occasional bunny picture. I I don't know what more you want. If people need more bribes than bunny pictures, I I don't know (laughs) that the human race has any chance of survival. (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. I really, really appreciate it. No, thank, thank you. you. I was so I was so excited when I came across your podcast, and I was like, yeah, other people want to talk about this as well and hear about it because I think my friends are quite sick of me telling them and another thing about. Oh no, me. <laughs> we will never be sick of it. I I think I can speak for a lot of my listeners and myself, obviously. When I, I just I want to talk about neurodiversity till the cows come home. I will be here <laughs> as long as I can manage it. This <laughs> is so interesting well thank you no thank you very much thank you so much for joining us today on the neurodiverging podcast i hope you loved this interview as much as i did if you are interested please check out Catherine's links which are below and check out her novel the things we left sleeping which is out now anywhere that you can shop for books barnes and noble amazon bookshop all the good places um, i know she would love your support and it's a fascinating text really um, and if you like this podcast please consider pledging monthly at patreon.com neurodiverging to support us in our work or throw a couple of bucks into the PayPal jar at paypal.me slash neurodiverging. Thank you so much for being here with me. And please remember, we are all in this together. Thank you.